All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fernand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to a, another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. I still haven't figured out a better way to start the show. So I just say the same thing. And maybe you guys like that. Uh, or maybe you don't. If you have suggestions, email me and uh, I'll work them into the show. But for now, welcome to another episode of Rethinking Faith is where we're uh, we're going to hang out. And as always, I'm uh, your host, Josh Patterson. And with me today is actually, so I'm, I'm very excited. I was nerding out a little bit uh, at work with some Jesuits that came in. I was filling them in about what was going to happen tonight. Then I had another buddy come in uh, who did his MDiv at Princeton and he's a nerd. So I could like nerd, you know, be nerdy with him. Uh, but regardless, today with me is <laughs> Philip Clayton. Uh, I'm very excited to, to have this conversation. So um Phil, Philip, Dr. Clayton, what would you like? How would you like me to address you? <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, let's just do, Phil is the easiest. And thanks for having Perfect. me on the show, Josh. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, for hopping on. Um, I I guess just, you know, anecdotally, I, I kind of first started encountering your work um, after I found, you know, the wonderful world of like open and relational kind of thinking. Um, Tom Ward was my gateway drug, so to speak. Uh, and <laughs> so I saw some of your stuff was referenced a lot. So, um, I think the first, um, book that I actually picked up was the, in whom we live and move and have our being, which is yeah. one that like you kind of edited like a volume. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed hearing you on with, uh, trip, our mutual friend. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to have you on today, but for, maybe just for listeners who are not as much of a nerd as I am. Um, or I don't know, whatever. Uh, could you just kind of fill us in, uh, maybe introduce yourself a bit, uh, tell us about who you are, what kind of stuff you find yourself doing. So in honor of your work as one of the best brewers in the country, I thought that I spontaneously just now thought I should tell you the story in terms of my history with beer. Um, 
so I was raised in an atheist family. And when I turned 12, okay, this is wine, but at least it's close. Uh, when I turned 12, my father said to me at the dinner table, I have no religion to give you, no bar mitzvah. I hate religion, uh, but I make wine here in Sonoma County and I'm a professor. So I'm going to teach you to appreciate red wine, good red wine. And he said, my worldview can be captured in a sentence, life's too short for cheap red wine. So as a 12 year old, I started learning about um, drinking. And then in 16, I got to go over to Germany for a summer. I lived with a Catholic family with eight kids. And despite two years of high school German, I couldn't say anything. So I started with the youngest kids because they didn't mind if there was grammatical errors. And then um, when I got up to the parents, what they would do is serve a lot of beer at dinner. And then we'd watch cheap Western shows from US dubbed in German, and they would give me more beer. And I found that my German got better and better with each bottle of beer, up to a certain point where I couldn't move my tongue anymore, and then it didn't didn't work, right? And um, so that was my introduction to German culture. I went over as a missionary with YWAM. I was a very conservative evangelical to Austria, and we played soccer with the local kids in the villages in Austria, and then played guitars and sang Christian songs and converted them, and then we drank beer with them. So that was my next, this is my most evangelical moment in beer. Uh, and then later I went back as a hitchhiker and traveled around Germany where they'd invite me into the home to spend the night and we would drink beer and talk about politics. And finally, I was a, a doctoral student under Wolfhard Pannenberg, the Lutheran theologian. I went for two years at the beginning of my career and then two years as a professor later. And in those years, you would have his lectures, and then you would go to a knipe, like a pub, and you would talk about his lectures and drink lots of beer. And finally, as a full professor, I went back to Germany and talked to two of his uh, other uh, people who studied with him, two famous theologians in Munich. We went out to the uh, English garden and the Chinesische Turm, so there's a Chinese tower uh, in a beer garden, and each of us had to buy rounds for the whole the other two. So one of the German guys went first and bought a, a Moss, that's a quart of beer. And then we talked theology and it was cool. And then the next guy bought a round. So we're now at half a gallon of beer. And now we talk theology with a lot of vigor and vim and passion. And then I was the last one and they had to drink it because the American was there. And we tried to drink three quarters of a gallon of beer. And at that point, even the Germans couldn't remember the verbs that went at the end of the sentences when they finished this uh, sentence. So they would come and they knew there were supposed to be four verbs there and they were just gone. And they'd kind of look at you glassy eyed and smile and you'd go close it and uh, figure the sentence was fine without verbs anyway. So there's my theological history in beer drinking. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's a great... Uh, it's maybe perhaps my favorite introduction of a guest. Uh, well done. <laughs> I loved it. And it, it also, it makes me happy too, to know that you had that history because I, uh, I mean, as you know, um, the, with the process party beer, I wanted to surprise trip by, um, putting some of his, you know, favorite like process people or, or friends, that kind of stuff, um, on the beer can. And I didn't ask anybody's permission. <laughs> so. I was very nervous. Like when I first showed it to Trip, he was like, "Oh, they're gonna love this." 
but I was nervous. It's like, well, I didn't really ask people's permission. I don't, you know, I don't want them to think I'd be disrespectful depicting them as a cartoon or uh, putting them on a beer can. But I'm happy to know that uh, beer has played a role uh, for it you. It was, by the way, your... the coolest label in history. <laughs> Trip was so jazzed when you sent him the PDF of your label that he immediately wrote Catherine Keller, Dana Butler Bass, and me and said, hey, you guys are finally famous. Here you are, you know, on the cover. <laughs> Diana Butler Bass, DBB, and I went to Westmore College together. I was just a couple of years older. But uh, we were there, so we knew each other at that time. Catherine is a close friend. And you, like, had all of us with Trip in the middle just for the coolest label ever. I've got it right here on the shelf in front of me. You can see it right there. I kept the last <laughs> bottle unopened till I die. It'll be on. I'm going to ask him to place it in my in my coffin with me. Like for oh, all there eternity. we go. When I show up, I'll say, hey, <laughs> look at who my friends are. Josh made us a label. We're good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I uh I was yeah, I was super excited with with uh how that turned out. Our our guy that did it, um, his name's Pilgrim. Uh actually his name's Phil, Phil Pilgrim. And he did an he did an awesome job. Um and because I I guarantee <laughs> he has no idea about theology like it's not his thing um and he just like took it and ran with it i just kind of took you know like headshots of you guys and whatever sent it over to him and uh, i think he did great so super cool um, super yeah cool. there's something about panentheism in all of this but i'm sure we'll get to that later yeah there is well yeah some we'll i don't know we could yeah the beer is in god and and god is within the beer so <laughs> here we go panentheism <laughs> who the brewer is josh yeah, there we go. <laughs> in certain bottles, I am sure God ate in that one. Some another guy with horns, maybe, but <laughs> oh man, well, yeah, so that's uh that I guess serves as a nice transition because I did um I mean there were when I first emailed you, I mostly was just being very generic because I was like, there's a million things that I would like to to ask Phil, but um I throw around the word panentheism a lot on the podcast and have never really defined it. Um, and I thought that we could have a really fun conversation, maybe almost as like a, hey, introduction to panentheism kind of thing. Um, and, you know, when we were emailing back and forth, you um, sent over some some fun ideas about uh, what we could do with it. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I want to do is is try to figure out what this panentheism stuff is. And uh, so my teaser, yeah. I was thinking about this as I prep for our show, cool. is um, panentheism is five things and all, and all of them deeply personal for me. The first one is it's a, it's a satisfying theological answer to questions of faith. Second, it's a brilliant basis for theists, Christians in this case, talking with science. It's a fantastic way to think philosophically about our faith. I mean, it's profound and subtle. Fourth, it is a way to draw connections between religions, which is really important for me. To, uh, and the bridges are often done. We did a book called Panentheism Across the World's Traditions with Oxford Press a couple of years ago. And, uh, and that shows how there's versions of panentheism in each tradition. And lastly, fifthly, it is for me personally, the answer to a crisis of faith. And I don't think I would have made it if I only had the God that I was, that I was given as an evangelical. So that's bottom line for me. Yes. Uh, so all five of those are, are deeply interesting, but I think 
for the sake of our conversation, I think listeners, you know, I mean, as we were talking prior, um, I told you that one of the kind of like common tropes we return to is this idea that if we're willing to go deep enough into our own story, then perhaps other people might find themselves there as well. Um, and that last uh, out of your five that you just put out, the idea that somehow panentheism was an answer to a faith crisis, um, my antennas went up. And so I'm just interested that that might be a really good way to introduce this to our listeners. So, um, yeah. How, so what was your faith crisis and how was, you know, what questions were you asking and how was uh, panentheism the thing that you came to that, um, yeah, ultimately kind of, I yeah. guess, resolved, I don't know, whatever language you want to use. Yeah, that's a great question. It's also personal and um, I want to, I want to go there. So um, my, I told you about my winemaking radical hippie professor dad in Northern California uh, who had who hated religion but uh, but was willing to teach me the religion of wine and so I turned 14 just about 15 and I needed a rebellion against the father figure right that's Freud and everyone else tell us this well what do you do with a liberal hippie dad you know Dad, I'm gay. Yeah, no problem. You know, I'm maybe if I was a conservative Republican, that would have gotten him. But, uh, you know, I'm I couldn't think of anything. I'm using drugs. I'm nothing would get him. Uh, So uh, I was part of a liberal Presbyterian church that I was going to. And um, I went down to a Christian retreat center called Mount Hermon near Santa Cruz. And um, I got God on Friday night. And by Sunday morning, I came forward and made a commitment of my life to Christ. And I came home, and it was a couple mornings later at breakfast, I was describing to them reality. And so I said, okay, so God created everything exactly the way he wanted it. And he created Eden, uh, Garden of Eden. And then, oh, they did something wrong, something about an apple. I, I didn't know anything about religion yet, really. And so they got kicked out. And but then I found Jesus, so I'm going to heaven, and you haven't, so you're going to hell. And all truth is contained in this one book, and that's it. And I remember my father was so astounded, he was silent for the first time in his life. Best teenage rebellion ever. And my mother, who was this kind of mystical, cool person, she was crying silently into her breakfast cereal at what an awful thing it just happened to her son. And I went all the way conservative really fast. I remember wandering in the summer after at a Christian camp at the summer after my senior year of high school, whether I should read any other book than the Bible, since all truth was contained in the Bible. I also became charismatic and went to an Assemblies of God church. I mean, I just like maxed out the conservative scale in every way you could go. Uh, and then I went to Westmont College which in Santa Barbara, which at that time had a doctrine of plenary inspiration. So that meant that every word in the Bible was dictated by God. And um, basically, I inherited a notion of God who was so hateful of me as a person, of my body, my sexuality, um, my drinking beer, I mean, everything that I inherited from my family, everything who I was, was abhorrent to this God that I was taught. And if I really hung on to Jesus, and if I really always got up at 5 a.m. to pray for others and, and memorize scripture, then maybe I'd be okay. But it was still pretty tenuous. Like, it's kind of like you're skating on thin ice, buddy. 
one slip up and you are fucked. I mean, you are in trouble. You are really in trouble. So um, it was from that point, my senior year at Westmont, that I discovered something like panentheism. My profs always told me it was something not to grab hold of or believe in. And I went to Fuller Seminary, switched eventually from pastoral track to theology, went to Germany. And by that time, I had really realized that the only way for me to bring the parts of myself together was panentheism. Namely, there is a source of all things which flows through all things. So I'm a kid from the Redwood Forest and the Pacific Coast. And to me to walk through a Redwood Forest at sunset with the sunlight streaming down through those branches onto the ivy at the and the ferns at the bottom of the forest, uh, to sit on a beach and sing, you know, the answers blowing in the wind and, uh, you know, sing uh, as the sun goes down into the Pacific there is there's that is so god fused those worlds that i i couldn't see god as distant from the world around me and yet as a christian i do believe that there is that god is not less than personal we're there's a personal ultimate that understands and is everything that we are and then infinitely more and panentheism is simply the name for that it's the both and and i find it phenomenally helpful for me and in conversations with others. Yeah, that well, first off, thanks for sharing. Um and it's interesting too, because I mean it just goes back to the the trope. Like I I find myself in your story um because I had a similar, I mean, I so my upbringing church-wise um was just like my parents were like nominal Christians at best, like Christers is a very yeah. like Christianese kind of word, Christmas and Easter. Um yeah. And then, you know, so I started out in like a Methodist church and um, then they like kind of got involved with that a little bit. Uh, they did this thing called like the walk to Emmaus, which was like a Christian retreat for adults. And then they like that's when my parents really started to take church more seriously. Uh, then they discovered like the wonders of early 2000s contemporary Christian music. And we moved to the Southern Baptist Church down the street. Um and ended up uh, getting booted from that church when my brother came out when he was in seventh grade. Um, and that caused a whole, you know, crisis for my family um, and myself, et cetera. But ultimately, like all that to say, I kind of come from this like weird world where like a lot of more like evangelicalism kind of shaped me. But I still had prior to getting that I had some like nice, like liberal Protestant Methodist <laughs> kind of stuff. So that when people great. started telling me like, hey, women can't be pastors, I was like, I don't I th think that's false. Like I had a woman pastor in the Methodist right. church. Like, <laughs> I don't know. What to like, I think they can. She's right there. Yeah. Um, so it's like an interesting kind of uh, thing. But ultimately, I ended up uh, finding, th you know, things like panentheism through my um, after I found open and relational thought. Um, which was the tool that allowed me to actually intellectually gave me permission to um, open myself up to actually want to experience God because I finally was given a, a, a version or an understanding of God that one didn't make God seem like just angry at me, wanted, you know, like smite me, beat me up, something like that, yeah. but also aligned with my experience yeah. of the world and things yeah. like that. And so um kind of similar in that 
and then I've just found, uh, as you're saying, panentheism just to be um, so beautiful, um, and the the repercussions uh, or the implications of it just I don't know play out nicely, and it's it's been super helpful for me, which is so, part of why I wanted to have the conversation. That's really helpful. What um, people nerd out about panentheism, and I'm hoping we'll do that. But I just want to say, in the simplest terms, it's a doctrine of God in dialogue with all that is. It's an understanding of the divine, not as some frightening judgment father in the sky, but one who flows through all things, as Wordsworth says somewhere, or says in Tintern Abbey. A sense sublime, he writes, of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling place is the round oceans and the open air and in the mind of man. It, it lets the divine be absolutely at the heart of all things that exist. At the same time, that, that one's not a pantheist. It's not like, oh yeah, the rock is God and the tree is God and the... You know, the redwood forest is God. It's all God. Um, it lets nothing be distant from God. There's a, a, a famous a French dictionary in the Enlightenment by um, Pierre Bale. And he, he spends um, 11 pages criticizing Spinoza, uh, who was kind of a panentheist or a pantheist. And he says, what's terrible about this view is that God is present even in the most evil of people. And my answer was, yeah. Like, does God have to draw back from the sinner? If that's true, then God has to draw back from me, and there is no salvation. There is no grace. But if grace is so overwhelming that there's nothing that frightens God, that God can be absolutely present to the heart of Hitler, saying, come on, buddy, come on, let's pull back, come on, slow down now, then we're okay. And that's that's why the, this idea of, the big word panentheism is redemptive for me. No question. Yeah. I, I find similar resonance in it as well. And also um, just to elaborate on what you were saying, it, it also, it helps me. So one, it reminds me um, about the deepest, you know, truth aspects of who I am. Um, but then also recognizes that the same, uh, you know, if you want to call it the image of God or whatever, um, the deepest, most truest aspect of who I am, that is also found in the other um, and in the rest of creation and in my pet dogs that are downstairs and my cat. Um, and like, I kind of have this, the way I talk about um, like sin is that I think sin arises out of this, uh, illusion of separation um when we believe that we're separate from each other um or from god or from creation it gives us permission so to speak to do all sorts of things right yeah, if i yeah. believe i'm separate from you and i'm not seeing the the divine in you then uh i can be racist i can you know kill you be violent whatever um but once like panentheism like helps me recognize and remember like oh no the thing that's most deepest 
and truest about me is also deepest and true about the other. Um, and it, like it's, salvation isn't salvation unless like, like it's all interconnected yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. I and so like, so I, I love that about resonate it. Yeah. with that. Um, so I started by saying it was the connection with nature, which is really what I'd inherited as a kid in a, you know, a really outdoorsy family in Northern California. But I later had the privilege to do a lot of traveling around the world. I was a guest professor in India, did events in Japan, uh, lots and lots in China. And what I found is that it allowed me, I was walking um, a road north of Tokyo. That It's a kind of pilgrimage that you walk all day long and you end up on the beach of the Pacific on the east side of, of um, Japan. And when I would stop at a Buddhist temple, I'd walk in, I'd sit cross-legged on this wooden floor. There's no altar. There's no religious symbol whatsoever. And, and I would ask, can I sense God here? And recognize that in this space, a tradition very distant from my own, that God was not absent. Though walls of a Zen Buddhist temple don't exclude God, don't frighten God, don't create a boundary that God can't cross or isn't always already beyond, right? And and in so we'll talk maybe about Hinduism later, but they the panentheism is most profoundly understood in the Hindu traditions, a particular one in Sanskrit, it's called Vishisht Advaita or qualified non-dualism. Not the radical uh, pantheism of, say, Shankara, but this deeply devotional worship-based understanding of God, of Brahman, in a guy named Ramanuja. So there are, there one finds uh, a resonance with, I believe, the God that Jesus proclaimed and called Abba Father, with a God that Paul spoke of in um, the Areopagus address, address in Acts 17. In, you know, this is the one, as your own poet, he said, referring to the heathen poets, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. To me, that's the heart of the gospel. That's incarnation understood back up into the doctrine of God itself. Yeah, no, it's so good. And it's it's funny because I recently did a uh, had a conversation with um, uh, Dan Koch and yeah. uh, Jed, uh, who yeah. Jed does church and other drugs. And we ended up, you know, we just kind of hopped on and, you know, figured out what's going to happen. Uh, and we ended up asking this question, essentially, like, if other religions are true, then like, what do I lose or something like that as a yeah, Christian? If other question. That's true. a Dan Coke question too. It is. And Dan is the one who asked it. <laughs> so, but what's cool about it was um, when we were talking, uh, the thing that I kind of started to push up against was I get really uncomfortable when uh, people start uh, like dissing the incarnation, I guess. Um, and Dan was asking me why I felt that way. Um, and it turns out it, I mean, it has to do with exactly what you're saying for me. I mean, much more when I talk about incarnation, I mean, something bigger than, and I don't want to say just in the sense I'm being dismissive, but something much bigger than just like, you know, the divine logos becoming incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's awesome. I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I mean something more than that when I talk about incarnation. Um, and I, I mean, incarnation in a more panentheistic kind of way. And so when that starts to get challenged or like people want to just like ditch it um 
it makes me uncomfortable <laughs> because yeah, it's kind yeah. of my perspective and worldview and something that I find so beautiful and that has helped me. Uh, so, so I want to push back against that a little bit. Please um, do. This is a, and it, it's people normally don't accuse me of sounding too orthodox, <laughs> but um, I, so I'll make it more personal that the way I came to understand God was through uh, okay. A super conservative Christianity, but it was, the Christian gospel for the first time I'd ever encountered it. And what I got was Emmanuel, God with us. And I figured like only those three words, I first even got that concept in a, in a kind of Christianity that a lot of us would be uncomfortable with now, but dang it, I got it. I didn't get that from the trees or my family or the books I was reading or anything. It's just that what Christians have then done, if the, deepest truth in the history of the universe is Emmanuel, God by grace with us, then how, why would we think that only we own that? And that's the one that really pisses me off. Because here's this incredibly salvific message. What's the key to the universe? God with us, with all of us. And then we go, oh, no, 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 no. It's just us, guys. Sorry, you're outside. Incarnation is limited. You, There's nothing about God in your world whatever it is, uh, you know, drugs or Buddhism or philosophy or science, it doesn't even matter. You're like godless. God is with us. It's a capital U, like my church, not your church. And that's the, that's the kicker in it. If we took Emmanuel seriously, we wouldn't own it. We'd give it away. We'd hand it to everyone we met. Like, hey, I just heard this incredible message. God's with you, all of us. And that's what I find so sad. I want panentheism with a capital P. Like, this is not our property. This is a recognition of the whole fundamental reality of this universe. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like uh, if, you know, people are taking the, that phrase, God with us, and then either putting like a footnote or an asterisk, and then you have to go look at the footnote, yeah. and it says like, oh, just us uh, Southern Baptists or us yeah. Methodists or us whoever. Yeah. <laughs> Or those yeah. are the right doctrine of scripture. Right doctrine, yeah, right, exactly. Or, or who just... signed the creeds for crying out? Like, if if you don't sign right. this, you know, Nicene Creed, you're so finished. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and that's the part of the beauty of pantheism is it it recognizes that um, if God is with us, as in you and I, that means God is with us all collectively, <laughs> present yeah. in it through all things. Yeah, the thing about pantheism as a doctrine is it's Okay, this is me, but I, I'm going to stand by it. It is a mystical doctrine because it says that no matter where you go, you're encountering God present. There's no place you can go where you can get away with from God present, which is like Psalm 139. It's you know poured across the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, and then New Testament. The phrase in Christo, in Christ, is used 93 times in the New Testament. In Christo is a mystical term. We are in the Christ as the Christ is in us. That's penentheism with a Christological tinge. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I, hmm. Yeah, I love the two that you uh, referenced scripture. I have a, a buddy named uh, Jace who listens to the show. Um, he's a Old Testament uh, like scholar and pastor guy. And often accuses me of not talking about the Bible enough. So, well done. <laughs> you're scoring. 
You're scoring he, points. He wrote Jay. me an email, Josh. He's saying like, get Josh to talk about the Old Testament for crying out loud. <laughs> right. So you got you got the the Psalms in there. That's that's like even like that's like higher level Old Testament stuff dropping the Psalms. So it's a good well, deal. <laughs> I mean, since we nerded out about Catherine Keller right at the beginning on a beer label, yeah, which I think is a great place to put Catherine Keller. You can tell her I said so. Um, Perfect. <laughs> then so she's interested in the um, this notion of the chaos in Genesis one one. And creation is out of a chaos, which means that God doesn't just create out of nothing, according to Catherine. I'm not sure I agree with her on all of this. Uh, we fight more than we agree, but that makes us friends. But um, that already, always already, even before creation, everything that was, was God. I love the um, the medieval Jewish way of understanding it in um, the uh, in the Zohar in the mystical texts of Judaism, they said that, um, in the, you know, God was going to create, and so this all-sufficient reality, Ein Sof, they call it, they call it um, was going to move outward and create something outside of itself. So, uh, and this is wonderfully metaphorical, God chose 10 virgin women, and they each carried a globe of glass, and inside the globe of glass was a spark of the divine presence. And so they're walking out. Well, it's hard to know what they're walking on since there is only God. But anyway, they're walking out. And you know how it is. It's hard to get good help nowadays. One of them drops her glass globe on the floor. Now, don't ask me where the floor came from, right? But she drops it and it shatters and the divine light gets out. And so the entire creation is suffused with the divine light. And that's a deeply Jewish, so Hebrew Bible way of understanding the presence of God in all things. Nefesh, spirit, is uh, energy or wind is present in all things. And then the, um, by the Reformed Jewish period, so early modern uh, period, it's um, that we try to reunite the spark that's in each of us, the divine spark. And when we come together and unite those sparks, then Messiah comes. So again, yeah. this understanding that permeating the world is the divine spark everything it's in everything that that is later created and can't be removed that's a gorgeous story to describe pentheism for me i love it it's a great story and it i guess to it, it reminds me of like i so like i'm not a philosopher and i'm not going to pretend to be so like please uh help me in my <laughs> misunderstandings or misappropriation of ideas here but one thing for me is like i um have found like i don't know some kind of like idealism to be helpful um or just and so listeners just essentially what i'm saying is uh the idea that like um mind or consciousness is primary something like that yeah. um and so if and when i think about that if god is somehow some like i don't know con consciousness or something like a mind however you want to phrase it and there was, you know, just God, and then out of God came, like, creation, right? If we talk about creation that way, um, then for me, I don't see how you could be anything other than a panentheist. Because it's like this, God is birthing these things, matter, whatever. Um, and so for me, it's like, that's another way I like to think about incarnation, Maybe mm -hmm. that gets too close to pantheism rather than panentheism. I'm not sure. Um, 
but so it's just something Christ- that I, I find beautiful. I don't that know. That is beautiful. Christians have been so paranoid about pantheism, about pantheism. And maybe if we could drop that, like that comes back to Greek debates 2000, almost 2000 years ago. If we just drop that worry and talk about the, the options that are opened up in the last thing you said, Josh, then, okay, so I get the 90 nerdiest seconds of this, of this podcast. So there are three different ways to think about that. One, we'll go back to the Hindu story that I told before. So for Orthodox Hinduism, the Vedanta schools, um, reality is ultimately exists of two things. Brahman, which is that ultimate, it's the godlike permeated in all things reality. Brahman for uh, Orthodox Hindus has three features. Satchichananda, being, consciousness, and bliss. That's actually works pretty well in the Christian context as well. So what exists is Brahman, but within Brahman are all the consciousnesses of all the souls that exist in the universe. So we're each of us, that's called the Atman. Each of us has our own Atman, but so do animals and fl- plants and everything else that, that reincarnates. And so we exist within God, but we have our own consciousness. The only thing that the Hindu is skeptical about is the physical stuff in the universe. And they call that Maya or illusion. We think that all the, you know, you know the concrete stuff really exists, but they don't, it doesn't really. So that's that would one nerdy position. The next one is so I'm an emergentist. I believe that in 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 the universe there were purely physical realities, quantum states and matter and suns burning and planets forming and stuff like that. But that as life evolves, probably on millions or billions of planets, it evolves to be first proto-conscious, like um a colleague I've worked with, a biologist, Stuart Kaufman, says even a little one-celled organism is out to earn its living in the world. So if it moves up a sugar gradient, then it reproduces, make lots of copies, and it's happy. If it moves up a gradient toward a poison, it dies. No atom cares about whether it lives or dies, but every living thing, no matter how simple, does. And as we become more complex, we get a central nervous system, and we get a brain, and we're dogs experiencing relationships with other dogs or what are um, higher primates. Then consciousness arises. Humans represent, or the most profound humans among us represent the deepest level of consciousness we know of. But presumably in the universe, there are physical beings far more consciousness and profound as we are. So there's that's my emergentist panentheism that I've spent most of my life working on. And lastly, there's Whitehead, because we've been, you know, talking about process here and Trip and Dan and others. So, and for Whitehead, there's that something element of experience in everything that exists. And everything then relates outward, so ex- expresses itself and then takes in the universe around it. And that repeats over and over and over again, even God. I still have my reservations about it, but it's a really intriguing notion that God is like us in that every moment of the divine life is expressing the divine nature outward and then like exhaling, inhaling, taking in an impression of the universe as a whole, evaluating it, and then sending that outward in the next moment. Three different views and all panentheistic. How cool is that? It's very cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's very cool. And I guess 
the the one that I am least familiar with or, or know the least about or at least comfortable trying to explain would be the emergentist um, perspective, um, which is yours. So apparently I just need well, to thanks, read more of your Josh, books. You know, that. I need to read more of your books is the problem. So I, you know, I hear am, am the problem, not you. Um, <laughs> but so like the, cause like the process stuff, the, the, the third option you laid out um, process I've encountered through people, like you said, trip, my engagement, reading the process, relational theology, whatever. And then the first one I found um, actually when I was kind of um, having my own kind of faith crisis, dark night of the soul started reading people like Thich Nhat Hanh, who oh, yeah, is a cool. Buddhist who I absolutely love. Um, and like Alan Watts, and I've read, actually, I'm looking right here. I've read a lot of Rupert Spears' work. He's cool. very much an idealist. Um, so, like, I just, I haven't had as much uh, interaction. But we did, uh, Mason, in his uh, in his uh, thesis, um, talks about um, emergence. And so we had some fun talking about that. Uh, he was on podcast with me recently. Um, yeah, so I guess to put in one plug for emergence. And that yeah, is, do it. If if you think that there's a divine spark, that that the divine reality preceded the creation of a physical universe, which is kind of orthodox, right? That's not an anti-Christian view. Then you would expect that creativity would be expressed through every moment of the 13.82 billion years of this universe's history. Uh, a Harvard Div School professor named Gordon Kaufman, his final book, one of his final books was called In the Beginning, Creativity. And I love that sense that it could start as a physical universe, but as it gets more complex, new things arise. So, I mean, I don't think an electron has consciousness. My process friends like Trip Fuller disagree. I disagree with Trip. He's wrong on that. This doesn't make sense because, by the way, physically speaking, every electronic electron is identical. But as you get more and more complex systems, at some point you have a system which is a kind of guess about the universe. Every single-celled organism is a guess of what will allow it to survive in its environment. It has content surrounded by, let's say, a cell membrane. Then it opens up, it divides into two, and closes again. It opens up, takes in its environment, divides into two. And with that, you launch into the first kind of complexity of being aware of its environment. And that grows and grows and grows. And for me, as a Christian, I see something deeply theological in that, that the divine creative spark, Steve Knapp and I in Predicament of Belief call it the divine lure. The divine lure is always drawing us toward more and more conformity with that infinite source of all things that pervades all things. And there's emergentist panentheism. Yeah, no, that was, you answered the question I was about to ask you. I was going to ask about um, just, I mean, literally what you, <laughs> what you just said. Well, I, I, re I mind know. read it, you know? No, I'm it's perfect. Kidding. Yeah, no, it was good. Um, that's so the, what are the, the criticisms? Like, you know, we don't want to just be like panentheism, rah, rah. Like what? Where should it yeah, make sure. us nervous? You should. You're being so polite, Josh. I'm not used to it in you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe you've heard that I'm just. Uh, 
a mean-spirited jerk that likes to challenge people on things. You do like to challenge spirit, but you're not mean-spirited at all. <laughs> so, I, I mean, yeah. I, I really should go there. Like, maybe we should consider some of the problems with it or... No, for like sure, because I know I have uh, friends, for example, who um, push me on that kind of stuff all the time, or I actually... this I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, when I first really started... Um, Oh, well, it wasn't when I first started studying theology, but when I was more serious about theology. I just graduated college. I was working for Youth for Christ. It was my first job out of college. Um, and I would ask my boss all these theology questions. And he was like, Josh, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> so um, I'm going to I'm going to connect you with my buddy uh, who is a pastor. So he connected me with a, a PCA pastor. And uh we started studying uh, theology together, specifically um, with the the youth pastor he had on staff, and he essentially gave me uh, Michael Horton's like systematic theology book, and we were like reading through that, and I was having all sorts of questions and whatever, and I very re- specifically remember um, being like just deeply. I tried being a Calvinist; it just I couldn't do it. Like I tried. Cause it was like cool or something and I couldn't do it. But uh, when I was, so like when I was reading and then I started studying and like trying to figure out like, why does this unsettle me so much? What does other people say? I brought some critiques back to the PCA pastor and literally I was told two things. One, that person's a panentheist. Don't listen to them. And two, they're a process guy. Don't listen to them. Wow. And so I was like, Oh, Okay. Well, now I know that I shouldn't ask those questions, and I ignored it for a long time. Oh, <laughs> and eventually, eventually came back to it. But yeah, so it's scary. Uh, what are yeah? If so, you know, and this is a really what you got us to is a point about the church in 2023, um, because we were told that the two most dangerous forces. I was told the same thing were process thought. I saw that at Westmont College when I was an undergrad. And um, so anything that has to do with process and anything that has to do with panentheism, what, think about what that means. Like take the jargon out. It means panentheism. That means that to see that God would not be controlled by creeds or scriptural quotes, but that God would perme- permeate everything in and act in ways that are unpredictable and not controlled by Christians necessarily. That can't be. Nope. Once we let that go on, anything can happen now. And then process, that would mean that there's a flow, in not only in the history of the universe, but in a person's own life, so that the outcomes aren't known, can't be controlled by some formulation, but one lives in a vibrant, flowing relationship with the divine itself in her or his everyday life. And dang, that's what I want to side with. Like when people leave a church, it's often because they were given a God who is immovable as those four laws, as unchangeable as those black and white words on a page of scripture, as incessant as the hymns uh, and sermons. And there is no chance for it to be fluid, flexible, responsive, adapting. But to me, that's where God is now. Not necessarily outside of churches, but 
anyone that thinks they have God reduced to a creed has killed the life of spirit. Those are strong yeah. words. I probably offended your whole, all your listeners, right? In a single sentence. Not, or they're all like cheering right now and they're like, woo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but I think it's true because I think in a, a, how I've said in the past, like a static faith is a dead faith. Um, and also, too, as someone who thinks that the, like, recognizes that the universe is still uh, expanding and going somewhere. Um, and that there's things that we're learning constantly new every day. I need to have some kind of uh, theological understanding of who God is that allows for those other things to be true. So God has to be to steal. I think I, is this I'm either stealing for trip from trip or Dan right now, but like <laughs> God has to be at least as big as the universe. Yeah. Um. And if the universe is continually expanding, then I, I need to have uh, some kind of like, theological humility that allows me to say here's what i think today but maybe tomorrow with some new information uh or new revelation if you like that word whatever like i can uh, accommodate that without it having to like destroy my whole yeah. system so to speak yeah. um so maybe I find that maybe pantheism <laughs> is like the sense of a ongoing revelation a progressing revelation that can't be contained. For me, it's it's all present somehow uh, in advance in Christ. So I, I do have a sense that that Jesus offered that more. Really, I have to say, Rabbi, even if I have a low Christology, um, there's there's a way in which it was. I got a picture of it, but it didn't own it. It didn't grasp it. Jesus is not somebody who would re reduce it to a creed or a four walls or a set of moral presumptions and predict you know predictions so there's a content there it's not just anything goes but it's a content that we're understanding through an ongoing relationship like my relationship with my partner you know i didn't know who she was when i married her and i'm you know after these years i was just more and more learning every good friendship or relationship every intimacy has that ongoing growth why couldn't the relationship with god be similar yeah I, I, yeah, I love, I love that aspect. And I love too. That's, I mean, that was part of one of the things that drew me, uh, into a more like, open and relational kind of understanding of the divine is because, of exactly what you just said. If my, you know, relation, if I'm, you know, I'm always told that personal relationship with Jesus is important and this kind of stuff. Um, if that relationship doesn't have the kind of uh, growth and learning and give and take aspect that they're kind of relationships that I have uh, with my friends or my partner or you know, whatever. Um, like I feel like God should be able to have that kind of relationship with me too. <laughs> it only makes sense. Um, so, and I guess, all right. So I know we're running short on time. And so I want to ask, this is a uh, more me being selfish. Cause I just want to hear you tie these two together. Um, but kenosis is another idea that comes up on the podcast a lot. And this fits nicely into the idea of relationship. Uh, and so how, when you talk about panentheism and also kenosis, how do you like to uh, present them uh, together? Yeah, uh, I love yeah. that question. Thank goodness you got to that one. That, that Philippians 2 is the center of my faith. It's also the earliest hymn we have of the early Christian faith. If Philippians was published in 53, 
then we're talking about um, just 20 years after Jesus' death. It's already a hymn of the early church. So have this mind among yourselves. Mind is from uh, phronesis, which is practical wisdom. It's like live in the world in this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which you have also in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in, found in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. So you do have the divine or a part of the divine itself with every attribute of ultimacy, but emptied himself. The Greek is ekinosin, so we, where we get kenosis. So the divine or a part of the divine empties itself of its own divinity. And that's what the rest of this canonic hymn is about. It, um, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. I love how kenosis and humbling are linked. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then it goes on in verses 9 to 11 with the glory part. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name. But I, as a white male, you know, who's got a house and is comfortable, I don't own that. That's for the people who have not had justice in this life. That's the people who are excluded. That's their verse. And I, I, I pray it for them. But don't have rich white guys praying it for themselves. That's just wrong. But the kenosis part, that's for rich white guys. Right? Humble themselves and became obedient unto death. Took on the a form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. Is so awesome. So this God of flow is the flow of those who are great, who are called to empty themselves, and those who are treated unjustly for generations whose suffering is unbearable. A universe where their suffering is not requited is an unjust universe. To them is the promise of the movement back upward, the divinization. If we could practice the letting go, those of us who have enough money to buy dinner and, and a good beer, then then I think we know something of the nature of Jesus. I love your question. Yeah, I, yeah, that, I mean, even, so that's so beautiful to me. And even just to go back to the the kind of a previous point we we're talking about, I remember finding kenosis and being very excited about it and trying to talk about it. It was the first church I ever worked at, which people who listen to this podcast know that church was a shit show for lack of a better term. <laughs> and um, when I started talking about kenosis, I was shut down. Like completely like, no, can't talk about that. I was given a bunch of gospel coalition articles about why kenosis is dumb um, and how it's dangerous. I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> like this is, this is so beautiful. It, it gives me a understanding of, like it, it it helps offer a Christology that I'm like, yes, I want to yeah. sign up for that. And hopefully on my good days, maybe I can try to look something like that. Um, yeah. And so, I, yeah, I don't know. And it's I think so just... wrong that they would say that, though, because from this earliest Christian hymn we have access to, it permeates backward and forward across the entire New Testament. So in the next chapter of Philippians 3.10, um, Paul writes, and remember, this is Paul in Rome shortly before he dies, possibly his last writing. I want to know Christ 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, which is Greek kenosis. When I was a young Christian, kenosis meant, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, so no, um, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, um, sharing in his suffering. And so somehow to become like him, becoming like him in his death. I mean, it permeates across the entire New Testament. Think of Luke 22, Gethsemane in Luke. And Jesus uh, sweats drops, uh, sweat like drops of blood and prays, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. And then the most profound Christology ever uttered in a verse of scripture, maybe aside from Jesus wept, is nevertheless not my will but thine be done. That's kenosis. Jesus' highest word is not my will, but thy will be done. I let my will go. Why wouldn't that be the center of a life for a Christian? I don't know, because I'm with you. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> uh, it's, yes, it's, it's yeah. Hmm. It's, it's beautiful. And to just to think, uh, just you know to go from the more like personal out to the macro just the idea that uh all of creation the universe whatever this experience is that we're having whatever all of this is is just a continual uh like self-giving other empowering love being expressed by the divine uh in and through all things always like amen Amen. And we inhabit the event of the divine, Yes, which yes. means we're in that divine kenosis being yes. asked to go with the flow. Hey, yes. the divine is emptying itself. Can you do a little bit of that in your church or with your friends or with your partner? I can't think of a more fantastic way to get out of bed in the morning than to say the divine is emptying itself out of love around me at all times. Do you think I could, you know, like put the toilet seat down or you know, could I listen to somebody when I'm in a rush? Or could I just get my bloody ego self out of the way and see the person in front of me for who they are? And that's why I can't give up on Christianity, whatever my doubts are, because there's something so profound in that way of living in the world that I wouldn't choose it for anything else at all. Yeah. Well, I, man, uh, amen. Um, nice sermon. It was perfect. And <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm with you. And I think that's uh, just a good a place as any to, to kind of wrap up for tonight. But um, this was a lot of fun. Hopefully you feel great. the same. I had a great conversation. Yeah. You want to have a podcast someday. I, I would like to. I'm working on it. So maybe we'll <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I absolutely. I would love to, to have you back sometime and um, continue conversation. But thank you so much for hanging out today, for uh, giving yourself to the conversation, uh, as it were. Um, yeah, is there anywhere uh, I should have people kind of look for you if they want to connect with you or your work, anything like that? So my website is philipclayton.net, P-H-I-L-I-P, philipclayton.net. But I'm working full-time on the environmental crisis now. And I so I formed an international organization called the Institute for Ecological Civilization. And you can find us at ecociv.org. And that's where I find the kenosis right now is folks are destroying this creation and we got to say no. So that's where I'm at. 
Uh, big time I'm with you. I have, uh, I'm looking at uh, nature and process, putting philosophy to work. Uh, what is ecological civilization? Hey. They're all right here in front of me. So Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> yes. Hey, this was an amazing uh, conversation. I had no idea. It was very organic and flowing. And um, I just really appreciate your hosting the podcast always, but especially today. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for your kind words. I had a blast. And uh, yeah, but want to want to let you go be fair to your time so uh thank you again uh hopefully our paths will cross in the uh the future and uh listeners as always thanks for hanging out today guys and go in peace